Thank you, our Father, for our Savior, Jesus. We've sung about Him this morning. We've read in part about Him. We've been reminded of the necessity of the cross, the impossibility of salvation on our own, the heaviness and the weightiness of our burden of sin against us, and the heaviness and difficulty and burden of life that weighs on us day by day, even hour by hour. And we thank you for the Savior who is gentle, humble himself, and all-sufficient. Might we not confuse his gentleness with weakness and inability? For the one who was low is the most exalted of men. Not just of men, but he is exalted as deity and even now at your right hand. Thank you for the reigning power of this humble Savior. For his authority, his wisdom, his grace, his kindness. He is all we need. Might we find satisfaction in him this morning. And might we be reminded of the importance of Him, even as we come towards Him from perhaps a slightly unusual passage. And so as we look at this story of Israel from thousands of years ago, might our own hearts be quickened, strengthened, emboldened, To walk with the one who would be their Savior and who is our Savior. We pray in his precious name. Amen. For many years now, at the beginning of every year in January, I preach one sermon on the Bible and one sermon on prayer. Just to remind us of the importance of these two fundamental aspects of our spiritual life. A few years ago, I added to that... uh, sermon as well on the gospel and evangelism. And then we've also been thinking in the last couple of years about themes for the year and how the Lord might direct us. And all these things are tied together to help us think about the essential parts of the spiritual life and just remind us at the beginning of every year, what are we about and what is our purpose? And to that end, we're thankful for how the Lord has revealed Himself to us in His Word and that we have fellowship with Him through the Bible and through prayer. And so we teach those disciplines at the beginning of every year. And frankly, not just at the beginning of every year, those disciplines, Bible and prayer, gospel, evangelism, are fundamental to everything we teach in Faith Fit and Precept and the Counseling Room and Awana and membership interviews and Preaching and sermons and GBI and Sunday school, everything we do is just saturated with Bible and prayer, prayer and Bible, Bible and prayer. The disciplines are important. They're essential. They're crucial. But it is also really easy to get confused about what we gain when we practice those disciplines. It is tempting to think that if we miss a day of reading our Bible, that the Lord will have his anger turned against us and be relentless in thrashing our day. And that he finds great privilege in in making our day miserable because we forsook time with him. That's overstated just a little bit, but... But haven't you had that thought, oh, I missed my Bible reading this morning. That's why today is so bad. There's also a temptation to think the other side of it. Oh, I had my Bible reading today. Nothing can go wrong. Everything is just going to be blissful and joy and happy and exciting and fun. And with either one of those thoughts, we've turned God into a lucky rabbit's foot or Aladdin's lamp. Or some other charm that just comes alongside to supplement our day 
instead of being front and center to what we want from Him and need from Him. Listen, the Lord's favor is not gained by outward ritual. And is not lost by outward ritual. The Lord's favor is experienced as a gift from Him by His grace to those who are humble and contrite before Him. Obedience to God matters. It does. But obedience that is based on what He said and obedience that flows from a heart that desires what He desires, that's what He wants. It's not just obedience. It's joyful obedience. It's not just submission to the disciplines. It's, it's a heartfelt embrace of those disciplines that says, by these disciplines, I get fellowship with God. That's what he wants. Now, the passage before us speaks to that in Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7 is a, something of a transition in the book. The first six chapters have eight visions that Zechariah receives about the coming age for the nation of Israel. Chapters 7 and 8 have to do with a question that comes from a city that's just north of Jerusalem and question really about spiritual disciplines and in particular fasting and what they should do. And then chapters 9 through the end of the book deal with the end times and it's Final prophecy, it's really the, the, the heart of the book, if you will. This morning, I want to consider with you this opening section. There's going to be four um, admonitions, four exhortations from the Lord in response to the question that's raised. So perhaps in your Bible at the top of chapter 7, it says something like a question about fasting or fasting um, and that's what these chapters are about. Chapters 7 and 8 are about fasting. And here's what we're going to find this morning as we make our way through verses 1 to 7. Spiritual disciplines please the Lord when they are done from a heart to please Him. Spiritual disciplines are pleasing to Him when we want to honor Him, when we, when we desire not just this charm aspect of the disciplines, but we desire fellowship and intimacy and joy. We might say it another way. Spiritual disciplines don't please the Lord without the right motive. You practice the disciplines no matter how faithfully, but with the wrong motive and that they they will prove to be empty to you, useless and perhaps even condemning from the Lord. What's interesting in this opening section, at least, is that there is a back and forth of questions. So the whole topic is raised by a question in verse 3 from the people of Bethel. And then it is answered by a series of three questions from God. And if there's one thing we learn from the Bible, and in particular from Job, one of the things you don't want to do is get into a question and answer debate with God. That's a losing proposition. And we find that in Job, and we find that again here. The question is asked with a sense of self-righteousness, of self-importance, perhaps a little bit of self-pity, and God responds to that to remind them that He doesn't want their rote obedience. He wants their hearts. So as we make our way through this passage, let's observe what the Lord teaches the restored nation of Israel about spiritual disciplines in general, and specifically the discipline of fasting, through a series of questions and answers. Again, spiritual disciplines please the Lord when they are done from a heart to please Him. First question pops up in verses 1 to 3. And as we come to this, uh, I think it would be helpful for you to understand a little bit about the biblical practice of fasting. What does the Bible teach about fasting? I will dare say that there is a vast amount of misinformation about what the Bible says about fasting. So let me try and clarify a couple of things. Uh, First of all, if we define fasting, what are we talking about when we use the word fasting? The biblical practice of fasting is an act of self-denial or an act of self-discipline in which some regular daily activity is given up for the sake of a spiritual goal. So it's something that is normally engaged in in the course of life in a typical day, 
But for the sake of pursuing a particular spiritual goal, it's set aside to focus on that spiritual goal, typically fellowship with the Lord in some way, typically through prayer. And generally, the abstinence is from food. So food is sacrifice. So when we think about fasting, generally we're thinking about food, though it can be from other things as well. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about um, abstaining from physical intimacy within the context of marriage. It doesn't use the word fasting, but that's the idea that is behind that passage. And it, again, is for a particular spiritual benefit. So when a couple refrains from that in their marriage for a season... It is for the purpose, Paul says, of prayer, of drawing their attention to the Lord. What's interesting about fasting in biblical terms is we there's there's if you jump on the Internet today and I didn't do this this week because jumping on the Internet and Googling things is often not good for the heart. But if you were to jump on the Internet and seek out information about fasting, you would probably find all kinds of information about the benefits of fasting. And so these cleansing things and getting rid of this particular thing in your body and, you know, kind of resetting your body chemistry and whatever else is going on. And you'd find all kinds of people advocating fasting from a physiological standpoint. The Bible never talks about that. That's not why fasting exists in the scriptures. It's always to draw our heart towards the Lord. It's about a spiritual benefit. Fasting was also typically used as an act of humility. Very often it was related to sorrow or grief over sin. In fact, um, in Nehemiah chapter 9, we find this, verse 1 and 2. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth, a sign of their grief and their sorrow, with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So there we see fasting is tied towards grief over sin and sorrow over sin. Sometimes fasting accompanied a a particular prayer, sometimes a prayer of anguish or danger or a prayer of desperation. We find Second Samuel chapter 1, uh, David um, and the nation of Israel fasting after the death of Saul and Jonathan. We find the nation of Israel fasting under Esther when she is um, beseeching uh, the Israelites to pray for favor as she goes in to the king um, in order to intercede for the Israelites. So a particular fasting that's connected to a particular kind of prayer. We also know from Luke chapter 18 that the Pharisees fasted twice weekly. That was something that was part of Pharisaic tradition. It was not mandated by the scriptures. Uh, evidently, history tells us that they fasted twice a week uh, to commemorate Moses' ascent on Mount Sinai, and then his descent from Mount Sinai. Skeptics have suggested that they fasted on Monday and Thursdays because those were market days, and when people would go to market, they would see the Pharisees fasting, and then the Pharisees would be raised in their estimation. That would fit with what we think about Pharisees, but that's conjecture. We really don't know. Even in the Old Testament, this is important, even in the Old Testament, Fasting is rejected by God when it is seen to be merely a formal activity and not done out of a heart that desires God. So, for instance, Jeremiah chapter 14, it says this in verses 10 through 12. Thus says the Lord to his people, even so they have loved to wander. So the Israelites have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. They haven't watched where they've gone and what they have done. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and he will call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. Isn't it interesting? They go to fast to gain favor of God. He says, I'm going to reject them. And by the way, instead of fasting, now you're going to get famine. If you really want to fast, let me show you a real fast. That will move you towards me. 
What's interesting, and this is probably not well known, I, I, I was helped to be reminded of this this week, there is only one command in the scriptures for fasting, and it's the Day of Atonement. That's the only day that was mandated by the scriptures for fasting. Uh, there are no New Testament commands for fasting, though there are examples of it. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6, First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, there are examples of fasting. There was, from the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, and there's with that phrase an expectation that people would fast, but there was no mandate to fast. So some people will never practice the spiritual discipline of fasting, and they're not being disobedient, and they're not being rebellious. So if you've never fasted, you've never been inclined to fast, then don't walk out of here saying, oh, I've just missed the boat, I need to fast. No, there's no mandate for us to fast biblically. In fact, Jesus would clarify in Matthew chapter 6, when you're fasting, it ought to be done privately and not publicly. When you're fasting biblically, no one should even know that you're fasting. Um, So when you're fasting and somebody says, hey, let's go to lunch, you say, okay, let's go. And you you, um, participate with them even though you have engaged in the process of fasting. So in summary, when we think about fasting in the Bible... When followers of God fasted, it was a sign of the depth of their need and it was a demonstration of their significance of their need as they prayed, right? So they're, they're reflecting back to God. I need you. I need help. I don't have enough to accomplish what you've called me to do. I'm dependent. One writer says this. I think this is in your notes. What fasting meant was that the individual was renouncing the natural demands of his body and the natural joys of eating and registering a total dependence on God. He was trusting God to sustain him day by day as he ate food. And when he abstained from food, he was trusting God to sustain him in a supernatural way. The fast then registered a total dependence upon God in a time of sorrow, distress, sympathy, confession of sin, or in a time of prayer. That's exactly right. So that's the biblical practice of fasting. And I lay that all out because that's where we're going in chapter 7. The first two verses give us a little bit of the historical context for the question that is asked in verse 3. Again, as in chapter 1, verse 1, Zechariah gives us the date that all this happens. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Because he's so precise, we actually know that date. It is another day of infamy, though it preceded our day of infamy. It is December 7, 518 B.C. No quiz on that date, if you forget. What's notable, and this is, this is why I draw attention to it, what's notable about that date is it's roughly 22 months after the revelation of the visions that started in chapter 1. So almost two years. And it is, we're not quite sure, there's some question about dating, about when the temple was actually dedicated. There's some discrepancy about the date. Um, it's one or two years off. But it's either two and a half or three years from the dedication of the temple that was restored and being rebuilt. So roughly the nation is about halfway through the rebuilding of the temple when these men come to Zechariah and the priests. It's helpful to remember as well from Ezra chapter 3 that the altar had been rebuilt. And with the rebuilding of the altar, the sacrifices had been reinstated. So, So the nation is thinking... Hey, the sacrifice is back in place. People are coming back to Jerusalem for our regular sacrifices. The temple is halfway being done. They're, they're seeing significant progress in the, in the, in the building of the temple. And they've got to be immensely hopeful. The circumstances did not look nearly as bleak as they had looked two years earlier. So, a delegation comes, we are told, verse 2, from Bethel. Now, the town of Bethel, the, it actually says literally, now Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. From 
the phrase Bethel sent, we assume that it's the leaders of Bethel, the significant influencers in Bethel, uh, the people of Bethel had sent them to make this query of the priests in Jerusalem. What's interesting about Bethel is that Bethel was the center of apostate worship under Jeroboam. So Solomon died and the kingdom gets divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And First Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam takes the ten northern tribes and separates from Rehoboam. First Kings chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Jeroboam uh, built Shechem, verse 20, 25, and he lives there uh, north of Jerusalem. So the king consulted, verse 28, and he made two golden calves. Uh-oh, that sounded familiar. And he said to them, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? What you don't you don't want to go to Jerusalem to worship, do you? And that's a that's a long way away. Where he sets one of these calves is in Bethel. It's twelve miles north of Jerusalem. It's not that far. Is it, it is too much for you to go up to Beth to Jerusalem? So behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Aaron made one calf, I made two. One wouldn't do it, two certainly will. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, way to the north. So no matter where you were in the northern tribes, you had somewhere to go, so you wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem, so you wouldn't have to worship there. That's the history of Bethel. After the Babylonian captivity, we're told from Ezra chapter 2 that some 223 Jews settled in and around and rebuilt Bethel and Ai. So some had come back, and we assume that some of them who are coming back are faithful Jews. They're faithful to the Lord, and they're wanting to do the right thing. Included in that group that is being sent uh, are Sherezer and Regimelech. They're Jews who evidently had been born in Babylon because their names are foreign. They evidently had been part of that contingency that had returned from Babylon to Bethel and Ai. Perhaps... Regimelech was a subsidiary to the king, an emissary of the king, and there is some supposition that he might have been doing business for the king even as he was making his way to Jerusalem. So maybe he had an ulterior motive in being there. We don't know with certainty. We do know that it's not just those two men, but they evidently were the leaders. They would have been well known at that time. But others also came along with them into verse 2. We see that. We don't know how many went with them, but it is safe to assume that they were prominent citizens. And why did they go? End of verse 2 tells us they were sent to seek the favor of the Lord. That word favor is often used in relation to confession of sin. It means, simply put, I need help. Would you minister to me? Would you help me? Would you be gracious to me in my time of need? As we're going to find out, this delegation had a different agenda than confession of sin. And that's where we go next. The nature of the question. We see the question in verse 3. Now, again, remember the setting. They're in Bethel. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to the place where the temple's being rebuilt. The temple is probably roughly halfway completed. Sacrifices are being in, in, uh, being practiced again. There's prosperity. Um, there seems to be a lot of good things going on. The opposition from the enemy seems to be vanquished. And, and all seems to be well. And it's in that context. Everything is good that they come to ask the question. They come to ask the question, notice verse 3, of the priests... And they come to the priests because the priests were the arbiters of all things related to the law. So if there's a question about what's the interpretation of the law, what does Moses mean? Then you would go to the priest and ask the priest and the priest would interpret the law and make a rendering and a decision. So they come to the priests and it notes to the prophets. We don't know with certainty, but given the fact that Zechariah is telling the story, it's probably safe to assume that he is among those who is being asked. And in fact, he becomes the primary speaker, not the priests in response. 
So we assume Zechariah was there since he says prophets, plural, probably Haggai as well. Notice this though, verse 3, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts. And so again, Zechariah is picking up this phrase, this title for God, the Lord of hosts. And you'll remember we've talked about this multiple times, but it's been about six weeks since we've been here. So let me refresh your memory. The Lord of hosts means it's the Lord of the armies, right? The armies in the heavens for sure. And probably also looking at the armies on the earth. That is, he is sovereign over all of the armies. He is sovereign in heaven. He is sovereign on earth. It's a way of saying he is God almighty. There's no one who can resist his will. He is over everyone and everything. And that's ironic in this context. Because they're coming to say we don't want to do something. And they're coming to appeal to the one who is sovereign over them. And we're going to see that picked up on in other places as well. Now, the request itself is quite simple. Middle of the verse, one of the speakers, either Sherazer or Regamelech, says, shall I, speaking for all the people, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Now, that's interpretive. But I think it's borne out by what we're going to see in the rest of the text. They were weeping, grieving, abstaining, that is fasting from food in the fifth month. Because it was in the fifth month that the temple was destroyed in 586. And they were grieving over the destruction of the temple. And so every fifth month, they would go into this process of grief, weeping, sorrow, fasting for the temple that had been destroyed. For all these years, the Lord will tell us in verse 5 that it was not just all these years, but 70 years. Probably the 70 years from 586 to 516, which is when this is roughly being spoken. 516 is the date actually of the rededication of the temple. So all those years... They had been fasting. And now they're looking and saying, things are good. We don't need to weep anymore. Is it okay to stop? What's interesting is they weren't just weeping in the fifth month, but we also know from verse 5, notice this, when the Lord speaks, He says that they fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years. In chapter 8, if you just sneak ahead a couple of weeks, thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth and the fast of fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So they had been fasting not just one month, not just two months, but they had been fasting for four months for 70 years. There's a reason for all those fasts. So the tenth month, I'm going to go out of order, but I'm going to go in order of events that are being commemorated. So the tenth month fast marks the beginning of the siege against Jerusalem in January of 588 B.C. So the siege from Babylon starts in the 10th month, which is January, according to their calendar, 588. And so because of the beginning of that siege, that's the beginning of their problems. That's why they fast in the 10th month. The fast of the 4th month is remembering the taking of Jerusalem in July of 586 B.C., about two and a half years after the siege began. The fast of the fifth month, we've already noted, is significant because that's the month in which the temple was burned. So the city was taken in one month, and then the next month the city was burned, so that's the fourth and the fifth months. And then the fast of the seventh month is a fast for the assassination of Gedaliah. Who in the world is Gedaliah? He was the Jew that was appointed governor by Nebuchadnezzar to rule over Jerusalem and over Judah and Israel. And he was assassinated by anti-Babylonian Jewish forces in October, we think in 581 B.C. We know the month, we don't know the exact year. And that was the seventh month. And because he was assassinated, they're grieving. But catch this. 
there's a little bit of self-pity involved here. So everything else you think, okay, God's being diminished, God's being set aside, God's being um, harmed in, in, in people's understanding of who he is. And that's why we're fasting. We're grieving over the desecration of God's name. But this grief was because the anti-Babylonian forces in Israel had assassinated the Babylonian appointed ruler and that put Babylon even more in opposition to Israel. And now they're sorry because we've got all these additional problems because somebody went and assassinated the governor that's appointed by Babylon. So there is a sense, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pound the pulpit pretty lightly on this one. Um, there's a sense in which it's a little bit self-serving. There's a little bit of self-pity going on with this particular fast. Again, God noted verse 5, it wasn't just these many years, but it was 70 years. So the entire Babylonian captivity, they're grieving. Things are going better. And now they come to the priests and the prophets and they ask the question, is it okay not to grieve? Now remember, these were fasts that were not dictated by Scripture. There's only one that was dictated. And it's the fast on the Day of Atonement. That's the only one. These were all voluntary. These were all ones by which they said, we want to do something to commemorate our dependence on God. Let's fast. And so there's a sense in which they can end it at any time. But they come and ask, formally, is it appropriate to end the fast? This is where they get in trouble. Two questions. And the Lord answers with questions in verses 4 to 6. Actually, they're going to get four responses from him. One that starts here in 7.4. Another response that starts in 7.8. A third response that begins in 8.1. And a fourth response that begins in 8.18. So let's just catch this one response today. God doesn't answer the question. The prophets don't answer. The priests don't answer. But God instead asks them a question. Here's the question. Why are you fasting? What is it that you're wanting in your fasting? And notice again that Zechariah notes in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 4, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. So they appealed to the Lord of hosts and the Lord Almighty, the Lord who is sovereign, the Lord who reigns over all is the one who responds, the omnipotent, authoritative God. Now, the question, in all honesty, seems really innocent. And perhaps the first time you read it, you thought, well, that's a fair question. It seems innocent. It seems appropriate even. But God's answer reveals that there was a problem with the Bethelites' question. They're concerned about outward. And God's concerned about inward. Says perhaps one of the finest Old Testament scholars and commentators, Charles Feinberg, on this verse. He says, men are always looking for rules, but God gives them principles whereby they can conduct their lives under the Spirit's direction. We just want rules. We don't want a heart. God wants a heart. And everything that he does in this passage provokes and draws out their heart. Notice the question. The question comes, and I drew attention to this as we looked at it, verse 3. Shall I weep? It's a singular question. It comes from the people of Bethel through the two emissaries and those who are with them. Notice how the Lord responds, verse 5. Say to all the people in the land. In other words, this isn't just a question for the Bethelites. This is a question for everyone in the land of Israel. And it is for the priests as well. So this is a nationwide problem and it's a nationwide solution and a nationwide answer. And again, typically the priests would be the ones that answer, but it is Zechariah who answers because he's hearing directly from the Lord. And the question that the Lord has for them is really quite simple, quite direct, quite penetrating. Verse 5, 
Was it actually for me that you fasted? God's not opposed to their fasting. Their fasting is appropriate. But here's the problem. They're concerned about timing. They're concerned about duration. We've given up all this time, four months a year, for 70 years, 280 months of sacrifice. Is it time to be done? When can we be done? And the Lord is unconcerned about when. He wants to know why. Why did you fast? The Lord is concerned about motive. In fact, what's interesting is both the verb fasting and the pronoun me are emphatic. So we might translate it this way which doesn't make sense in English, which is why it's not translated this way, but it captures the sense. Fasting, did you fast to me? Me, myself? Was it to me that you fasted? Was it for me? And the way the question is asked, it anticipates a no answer. No, we did not. They had made a decision to fast and to commemorate their grief and their dependence on God. That's appropriate. They had continued in that regular practice for decades. That was appropriate, but they missed the intent and the purpose of the fasting. They were self-exalting and they were self-focused in their practices and they were uninterested in expressing their love for and their dependence on God. It was ritual without relationship, without fellowship. The fasting was about themselves and it was not about the Lord. And brothers and sisters, like the Israelites, our service of Christ, our worship of God, our practice of disciplines, our obedient acts of faith, our service within the context of the church can all be undermined by ungodly motives and ungodly desires. God cares about what is in our hearts and when we serve Him and worship Him, both corporately and privately, He wants our heart. He wants us to be engaged, to delight in Him. It's not enough to worship the Lord. He expects a worship that delights, that pursues, that wants Him in that worship. That was true in the Old Testament. I could give you multiple examples. Let me just give you one. Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Enter Bethel, God says, and transgress. Uh-huh, isn't that interesting? Go to Bethel and transgress with your false sacrifices, right? Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. In other words, not just bringing the mandatory, but you're bringing the extra sacrifices, the thanksgiving sacrifices. You're going above and beyond. You're proclaim, he says, the free will offerings and make them known for so you love to do, declares the Lord. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all of your cities. In other words, your teeth are clean. You have nothing in your mouth to eat. And lack of bread in all of your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And then he goes on to elucidate all the things in which they have done to not come to him. Oh, they had the sacrifices right. But they missed the heart. And that theme runs all through the Old Testament, and it runs into the New Testament as well. Just one example, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says this, Matthew 15, verse 5, not verse 15. I was looking at verse 15 saying, that's not right. It's because it's verse 5, 15, 5. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In other words, you've said, well, mom and dad, I'd I'd help you with making your house payment. I know you're on fixed income and I'd love to help you, but I've already dedicated that money to the Lord and I can't give it to you. 
And he says, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So they do all the right things externally, but internally they're far, far away. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's not get caught in a trap of routinely doing the right things with a wrong heart. It's not enough to read our Bible on a daily basis without a desire to know Him. It's not enough to give our money and say, See, God, you got my money, without also giving it joyfully, with gratitude. It's not enough to obey with our actions, but inwardly have a rebellious heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, legalistic, slavish obedience apart from heart is a terrible trap and is bondage. And even worse, it does not please the Lord. There's a second question the Lord asks as if the first question wasn't enough. And the question is, are you, asking, are you fasting for self-glory? The second question mirrors the first. They sound very similar, but frankly, it's even more penetrating. The first question indicates they had rejected the Lord. They'd rejected worship of Him. They'd rejected delight in Him. The second, indi- second question indicates that they're living for self-exaltation. The first question says we've removed God from the throne. The second question says we've put ourselves on the throne as being those who are worthy of worship. Again, the question is bold. It is clear. It is unambiguous. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? And the question is an anticipated yes. The answer is an anticipated yes, we do. They ate for themselves. And on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months, they fasted for themselves. It was all about them. The fasting was not for the exaltation of God. The fasting was not to say, I'm dependent on God. The fasting was not to say, God, I need you. The fasting is to say, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm sacrificing. Oh, look at how hard my life is. Look at how pitiful my condition is. Look at how woeful I am. They were intensely preoccupied with themselves. It was a massive expression of self-pity and self-reliance. Spurgeon rightly noted the danger of self-sufficiency. He says this, The danger of every Christian worker is that of falling into routine and self-sufficiency. We are most apt to do what we have been accustomed to do and to do it half asleep. Isn't that right? You know, it's that that rote reading of the Bible. Um, I'm a little bit ahead in my reading for the year, and so I'm in Leviticus. And it's all the temple design stuff and all the sacrifices, and it's stuff that it's just foreign to us. And it's all these rituals that were to be practiced, and it is really easy to go... We're eyes over the page, eyes over the page, eyes over the page. Without taking a few minutes at the end to say, what is God teaching me about what he demands of his people? What is he teaching me about himself and his sacredness? What is he teaching me about me and my dependence on him and my need for him? And that's that's the warning for Israel and for us. Their failure and their rebuke from God was not because they wanted to end their fasts. That wasn't the problem. The fasts were irrelevant. The problem was that they were wanting to end their fasts because they were wanting to end their dependence on God. I don't need Him anymore. Life is good. They loved self-reliance, they loved self-justification, and they denigrated God-dependence. We don't need Him anymore. They were tired of spiritual practices, they're weary of suffering, and they were failing to see that their troubles were a means for God to reveal His gracious provision and His care for them, even including His loving fellowship with them within the context of the practices that they wanted to denigrate and put away. And as a reminder for everything we do, Bible and prayer and evangelism and service, 
None of it has any meaning if it's done in self-pity and self-justification or in ritual. Our service of God only pleases Him when it is done for His glory. You know, I read verse 6 and I was kind of digging around it this week and it just suddenly dawned on me. Read verse 6 again. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? I wonder. I don't know. There's no way for me to justify it until I get to heaven. But I wonder, did Paul have this verse in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 10.31? So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. It's all about pursuing Him. One last aspect to the questions and answers. God's not finished yet. There's one more question, verse 7. And it serves as a reminder about from the past about fasting and obedience. God asks this. Are these not the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? In other words, when you are reading the prophets that have already been given to you, And the prophets that have already revealed what I've said, isn't this the nature of fasting and the desire to pursue Him and have fellowship with Him? Isn't this what they said? Yes, that's what Isaiah said, and that's what Amos said, and that's what Jeremiah said repeatedly over and over. They wanted a zeal for God and a heart for Him. And then God notes this. When those words were given, Jerusalem was inhabited and Jerusalem was prosperous along with its cities around it. Remember when all these things came, I'll put the fancy word on it, the pre-exilic prophets, the prophets that were before the exile and life was good and life was prosperous and Jerusalem was abounding and the cities were abounding and flourishing and crops were growing and everything was wonderful. And it wasn't just there, but around the Negev, down south where the mountains are and they protect you from invaders coming up from the south. Weren't things good? And the lowlands or... Uh, The foothills, they were inhabited and they were prosperous. Those lowlands and foothills occasionally were places where invaders would come in and other times they were places of of famine from drought. But, But he's pointing to a time when things were prosperous. What's his point? The prophets spoke. Things seemed to be going well and you disobeyed. And in time of prosperity, you were taken into captivity. It's a warning. Don't think just because things are going well that you can put it in cruise control or whatever the corollary was in 518 B.C. And say, we're done. We're good. We don't need this. It's a warning. But in times of prosperity... To beware of ritualism. It happened then. When the nation was taken into Babylon. And it can happen again. Is the warning. Just because things are prosperous. Doesn't mean that you aren't dependent. Brothers and sisters. I I think we do well to think about this. Both corporately and privately. Corporately the Lord is seen fit to give us a season of uncommon blessing in our church body right now. The Lord is expanding ministry opportunities, giving us influence, growing. We're seeing people coming to Christ. We're seeing people growing in Christ. And the church flourishing both spiritually and numerically in ways we've never experienced before. And brothers and sisters, dare not say, we've arrived. Let's just put it in neutral and ride on down the hill. The Lord wants our hearts in seasons of blessing and in seasons of hardship. We may be experiencing not just uncommon blessing corporately, you may be experiencing uncommon blessing privately, personally as well. Your marriage is healthy. Your children are walking with Christ. You're enjoying ministry and 
Everything in life seems to be flourishing. This is no season to think, let's coast. Brothers and sisters, everything we have, we are dependent on God. And we are nothing without Him. We need Him desperately in good times and in hard times. And so we've been trying to reiterate these things. So last year we said it this way. We're doing things well. We're loving each other well. Excel still more. Don't stop. It's time to keep going, to keep pursuing. And this year we're saying it this way. We're going, we're doing well in ministry and we're growing well in ministry. Let's equip the saints. Let's keep equipping. Let's keep building. Let's keep cultivating. Just because we're doing well doesn't mean it's time to stop. It's time to press in all the more. Spiritual disciplines and sacrifice and in service do not inherently please the Lord. Our spiritual disciplines will please the Lord like the Israelites of old when we do them from the heart. We want Him. And so everything we do in our personal disciplines and our corporate worship and our corporate service is done because we want Him. That's why we fast. That's why we do spiritual disciplines. That's why we serve to get Him. Father, we thank You for a sober reminder from a passage perhaps that none of us have paid any attention to previously, but a helpful passage to remind us of the heart of what You want in our hearts. And so would You... Continue to guide us to that end so that what we do will be pleasing to you because our hearts desire to please you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.